are listening to the Sunday Sermon from Crossroads Bible Church in Bellevue, Washington. To learn more about Crossroads, visit us on our website at cbcbellevue.com. At one time or another, you and I have experienced the pressures of crunch time. Crunch time is when everything is on the line and you must act. It could be a game, a class, your job, your marriage, your health, or even the future of our nation. Crunch time requires you to act, but to act quickly and decisively. Because everything is on the line and you find yourself in the midst of a pressure cooker. Our lives are filled with crunch time moments. So it's natural to ask the question, how does God show up in crunch time? Daniel chapter 2 answers that question. So turn with me to Daniel chapter 2. And we'll see how God shows up at crunch time. Our story begins on a fairly ordinary note with a typical experience of a king or really anyone in leadership. In verse 1 we read, Now in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams and his spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Now that may not seem like Just people in leadership's experience, that may seem like your experience as well. Have you ever had a night or two like King Neb? Where you can't sleep, where you're fearful, where you're filled with anxiety. All of us have dealt with that, haven't we? But here's something I bet you did not know. The first emotion recorded in the Bible is fear. Genesis chapter 3, verse 10. In verse 9, we know that Adam has sinned and the Lord comes calling. Where are you? Adam says, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid. That's the first emotion in the Bible, fear. It doesn't require necessarily dreams or visions or even nightmares to experience fear. You know how this goes. You get a call from your doctor, and your doctor says, I want to talk to you about your most recent set of tests, but I want to talk to you in person. Your phone rings at 2.30 in the morning, and you immediately realize your son or daughter is not home. You're called into your boss's office, and your boss says, I have some bad news. All of us have dealt with these types of experiences. And those of you who are in high school or college, you're perhaps dealing with fear and anxiety right now because you know that graduation is quickly coming your way. And you may be wondering, what does the future hold for me? There's that sense of fear and uncertainty about the future. That's why it's so important that we be asking this question. How does God show up at crunch time? Well, verses 2 through 6 really start rolling our story out. And this is where things diverge. We've had a shared experience with King Neb, but now there's a very different set of actions that occur. 
Notice in verses 2 through 6, then the king gave orders to call the magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. The king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic. From this verse all the way through chapter 7, Aramaic is written instead of Hebrew because the focus is really upon the Gentile nations of the world. This is what they say. Oh, king, live forever. Tell the dream to your servants and we will declare the interpretation. Now, King Neb is no dummy. I mean, he didn't just fall off the turnip truck. He has heard enough of the interpretations from some of his wise guys, from some of these sages, and he realizes they're bunk. So this time he asks for both the dream itself, the revelation, and the interpretation. In verses 5 and 6 we read, The king replied to the Chaldeans, The command from me is firm. In other words, I'm unrelenting. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb, and your houses will be made a rubbish heap. But if you declare the dream and the interpretation, and then you will receive from me gifts and a reward and great honor. Therefore, declare to me the dream and its interpretation. This is the ultimate stick and carrot approach. I mean, here, King Nebi says, if you don't give me the dream and its interpretation, I'm going to tear you limb from limb. Now, we're thinking, well, this is metaphorical, isn't it? No. This means dismemberment. And after your body has been dismembered, then you're killed. But then, he doesn't stop there. He shames these magicians and conjurers. He says, if you don't come up big in the clutch, after that, I'm going to shame you and your family so bad, I'm going to burn your house down and I'm going to turn it into a rubbish heap. Which means a roadside porta potty I mean, this is shameful. This is humiliating. But he says, if you come up big in crunch time, I'll reward you richly. What a great reminder that the Lord loves to intervene in what seems to be very difficult circumstances. Now we see how the king continues to interact with these wise guys and these sages. In verses 7 through 13 we read, They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell the dream to his servants and we will declare the interpretation. The king replied, I know for certain that you are bargaining for time inasmuch as you have seen that the command from me is firm, that if you do not make the dream known to me, there is only one decree for you. For you have agreed together to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the situation is changed. Therefore, tell me the dream, that I may know that you declare to me its interpretations." So they're going back and forth, negotiating whether or not the king will give up the dream. Because if the king just gives up the dream, 
the sages will be able to come up with an interpretation of some kind. But the king has increased the intensity of this dialogue. In verse 10, the Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who could declare the matter for the king. Inasmuch as no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any magician, conjurer, or Chaldean. Now stop for a moment. If you take notes in your Bible, and all you have to do is circle the number 11. Verse number 11. Moreover, the thing which the king demands is difficult, and there is no one else who could declare it to the king except God's, whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. So this is profound. Here we have the occultic members of the Babylonian society saying, this is something that only the gods, plural, can do. Now, admittedly, we have a problem with plural when it comes to gods, but they at least know it's outside of themselves. This is something that they cannot do. Verses 12 and 13 are intense. Because of this, the king became indignant and very furious and gave orders to destroy all the wise men in Babylon. So the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain, and they looked for Daniel and his friends to kill them. This is one of those situations where we have an obvious case of crunch time. And we're not talking crunch time in the sense that we use the term. We're talking literal crunch time, where your bones and your muscles and your ligaments and your tendons are going to be crunched and dismembered, and then you will be killed. And then your home will be turned into a roadside porta potty. This is crunch time. So the question is, does God like to come up in crunch time? Is God a God who is clutch, if you will, who can act quickly and decisively? How is Daniel going to get himself out of this sticky wicket? He is now a man with a bounty on his head. He is going to be eliminated by the king. So how does Daniel get himself out of this situation? Notice what takes place in verses 14 through 16. Then Daniel replied, and read this carefully and slowly, with discretion and discernment to Arioch, the captain of the king's bodyguard, who had gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon. He said to Arioch, the king's commander, for what reason is the decree from the king so urgent? Then Arioch informed Daniel about the matter. So Daniel went in and requested of the king that he would give him time in order that he might declare the interpretation to the king. Daniel is approximately 17 years old. And some of you here are teenagers. Some who are watching online are teenagers. Can you imagine waltzing into the king's palace the most powerful ruler in the world, and talking to his bodyguard, who's also his executioner, and his name is Arioch. I mean, that's a bad dude. I don't need to know what he looks like. He's a bad dude. Arioch. I mean, that's the type of guy that would be on CBC's security team. That's a manly man. And Daniel, a teenager, approaches Arioch 
And he says, what's the big deal? Why are things so urgent? Arioch apparently has a great deal of respect for Daniel because he takes the time to hold off on his execution tour and he explains the details to Daniel. A teenager, a Hebrew teenager who had been taken into captivity by the Babylonians. Now, why would Arioch do that? Because he had seen Daniel's character, his submission, and his wisdom. So there's a positive relationship that exists between Daniel and his governing authority. Now, in verses 17 and following, we find out why Daniel asked the king to postpone the executions. He wasn't just buying time. There was something else that was going on behind the scenes. Look at verse 17 and 18. Then Daniel went to his house and informed his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, and about the matter. Now notice this, verse 18. So that, there's the purpose, so that they might request compassion from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. So that Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men in Babylon. Going back to verse 1, the king is trying to sleep. And he wants his dream figured out. Fast forwarding to verse 17, Daniel is wide awake and he's praying. And notice what he does. He prays first before he attempts to interpret the dream. And he gathers his close friends and he says, guys, it's crunch time. Our lives are on the line and we need God to come up big. Will you pray with me? And did you notice what he asked for? He asked for compassion. Now that should immediately ring a bell in your mind, right? If we go back to chapter 1, verse 9, remember what God gives. He gives favor and compassion. And I challenged us, while it's a declaration, let's turn it into a prayer. Let's begin to pray, Lord, will you grant me, will you grant my spouse, my child, my grandchild, will you grant my friend favor and compassion? Daniel asked for it again. God, have mercy. My neck is on the proverbial chopping block. I, I need you to come up big. Who does he call out to? the God of heaven. This is the first of five times that phrase or title is used in Daniel chapter 2. Why would Daniel use that particular title? Because when you're dealing with the most powerful ruler in the world and the most powerful empire in the world, you've got to call out to the God of heaven, the God of the universe, the God who is in complete control, the God who is large and in charge. You call on the one true God, not the God of the Babylonians. Daniel is all about praying. But I want you to see, when there's a crisis in his life, he goes to his small group. See, what often happens with Christians in general, and perhaps even some of us, is 
we're not involved in a small group. We don't have a Sunday morning community. We don't have a community group. We're not involved in men's or women's ministry or youth ministry or anything else. And then a crisis hits our lives. And we don't know what to do. So, of course, we go running to Christians hoping that someone's going to bail us out. And we really want like a microwave-like relationship. Just like we would heat up a burrito. Maybe it takes 90 seconds. We want that kind of relationship with Christians. We've never prioritized those relationships before, but we're in the midst of a crisis, and we need help, and it's the responsibility of Christians to help their brother or sister out. I'm not saying that can't happen. I would say often it's exceptional. Because if you haven't established an intimate relationship with the body of Christ, if they don't know you if you don't know them, it's hard to build up that relationship in the midst of a crisis. But if you've had people walking with you, praying with you, serving you in a small group of some kind, you're going to have a strength so that when a crisis hits, when crunch time is staring you down the face, you're ready. You're ready. Because you've got brothers and sisters in arms ready to fight with you. If you're not involved in a small group of some kind, today is the day. Make a commitment. In 2021, I'm going to find a group of believers that I can do life with, that I can have accountability with, that I can be in community with, that will pray with me and that I will pray with. That's the only way your Christian experience is going to move to the next level. It's amazing when we look at these verses, how Daniel prioritized prayer and community. But in verse 19, we reach the high point of the passage. This is really the apex of the entire narrative, all 49 verses. So you may want to circle number 19, verse number 19. And you'll see there's two uses of then. First, then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. So Daniel immediately is given the interpretation to the dream from the king. But not just the interpretation. He's given the dream itself in vivid detail. Does God come up big at crunch time? Yes, he does. That's because God is the God of crunch time. God loves to show up when the livelihood of his people is on the line. Or even when you're in the midst of a trial or a tragedy or a test of some kind. God loves to show up. But if we look at verse 19b, we read, Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Now see, we read our Bible so quickly. And we read it with such little thought at times, we don't see the significance of what's going on. Daniel is about to be executed. Every sage in the entire kingdom is about to be executed. Daniel is trying to save his own skin and the skin of his fellow Hebrews. If you had been Daniel, what would you have done? I mean, you would have run. You would have sprinted into the king's palace. <laughs> king, king, king. I, got, I have the dream and I have the interpretation. <laughs> that, that's not what Daniel does. Daniel presses pause and he crafts 
a prayer of praise to God. I mean, it's beautiful. What do we tend to do? We act and then we pray. But Daniel does the exact opposite. He prays and then he acts. So let's look at this poem, this poem of praise. Daniel said, let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. So you'll want to note that phrase, wisdom and power, in verse 20. It is he who changes the times and the epochs or the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me. Did you notice that? You have given me wisdom and power. Verses 20 and 23 bracket this poem. They bracket this praise. So it begins with God being praised for wisdom and power. And then Daniel thanks God that God himself gave Daniel wisdom and power. How did Daniel get wisdom and power? He spent time studying God's word. He spent time retaining God's Word. He focused himself on Scripture, on hiding God's Word in his heart. That's what gave him wisdom for the moment of crunch time. Once again, our tendency is we turn to Scripture at times when we're desperate, when we feel like our lives are on the line. It's crunch time. I'm going to double or triple up my time with the Lord. I'm going to really get into his word. But again, that's like trying to build a house in the winter months in western Washington. You need to build your house in the summer months when it's dry and sunny. I do too. And I think I'm guilty and we're probably all guilty of trying to accumulate wisdom on a dime when we need it desperately. And Daniel built up years of wisdom, even though he's only 17. Remember, he was raised on the preaching of Jeremiah. He sat under a godly king, King Josiah, and he just built up wisdom. Even though he was only 17, he was the wisest man in the Babylonian Empire. That can be true of you, teenagers, college students and young adults. If you are a man or woman of the word, you can have the wisdom of Daniel. But Daniel acknowledges it's all about God. It's not me. It comes from God. He recognizes that, which is why he stops and praises God. What's interesting is our church is in an extraordinary place right now in our growth in prayer. I just received a text from Kelly Curran, our women's ministry director. They're in the midst of a study in Nehemiah. They've just kicked it off. And the women are so pumped to pray scripture. I mean, Kelly was calling it revival in women's ministry. Our Sunday morning prayer gathering, our Wednesday night prayer gathering, perhaps some of the things that you're doing in your community groups, in your Sunday morning community, they're praying scripture just like Daniel is praying Scripture, just like Daniel is focusing in on God's character, his nature, his attributes. We have people doing the same, and you can do it too.
You could just simply ask God for his wisdom and power today. Lord, would you grant me wisdom and power because I need it. That's praying the scripture. And once you've done small prayers like this, you can build and start praying other types of prayers all from God's word. Because remember, as much as God loves you and me, he's not after you and I just sharing our own thoughts and spouting off, perhaps even pooling our ignorance. He's after us praying his word back to him. Praying scripture will make all the difference in your life. So what ends up happening now that Daniel's praise-a-thon is over? Look with me at verses 24 and following. Therefore, Daniel went into Arioch. I love that. Whom the king had appointed, notice, to destroy the wise men of Babylon, he went and spoke to him as follows. Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me into the king's presence, and I will declare the interpretation to the king. Is this crunch time or what? Then Arioch hurriedly brought Daniel into the king's presence and spoke to him as follows. I have found a great man among the exiles from Judah who can make the interpretation known to the king. Is this true? No, it's not. I mean, Daniel found Arioch. Arioch did not find Daniel. But Arioch, the studly man that he is, wants to take credit for saving the nation from what could be a disaster. He's intervened. Aye. Daniel does the exact opposite, as we will see. In verse 26, the king said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? Crunch time. And it may be literal. Daniel may find himself executed based upon what he could reveal about the dream or the interpretation. But Daniel's confident. But he doesn't answer the way we might think. Verse 27, Daniel answered before the king and said, As for the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. Say, what? Daniel's a wise man. Daniel says, I, I can't declare it. Your sages are right. Only the gods can declare it. So Daniel starts off with humility, but notice the segue. Verse 28, circle number 28. Verse 28 is critical. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. You can see that verb reveals. This isn't as evident in our English versions, but there's over 30 uses of a revealing verb throughout Daniel chapter 2. Over 30 uses. This is about God revealing the mysterious, the miraculous. Daniel says the one who will reveal the dream and the interpretation is the God of heaven. The God singular of heaven. The creator of the universe. Now, in verse 28b, we will see what the dream was about. This was your dream and the visions in your mind while you were on your bed. As for you, O king, 
While on your bed, your thoughts turn to what would take place in the future. And he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what will take place. But as for me, the mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me more than any other living man, but for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king and that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. In other words, praise God, all glory to God. This dream, its recounting and its interpretation is not of me, it's of God, Daniel says. In verses 31 through 35, we read, You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue. That statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. It was fearful. The head of that statue was made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. Now we need to slow down right here, verses 34 and 35. You continued looking until a stone, circle that word stone, a stone was cut out without hands. What does that mean? It's of divine origin. Whatever, whoever this stone is. And it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. In other words, it didn't go after the body. It went after the feet. This stone did. And it crushed the feet. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, and the silver and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. So whenever these events happen, where the stone smashes the feet, it's going to be after all of these nations are done or about to be done. Lastly, but the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Circle that word mountain. So you've got stone circled, you've got mountain circled. In Scripture, when stone is used metaphorically or symbolically, it has divine origin. When mountain is used symbolically or figuratively, it's used of kings, kingdoms, and thrones. So now, you have to at least ask yourself, who or what is the stone? And who or what is the mountain? And how does all this timing work itself out? We can acknowledge this is nothing short of awesome. And I never use the word awesome of anything but God. And so here, Daniel himself acknowledges the awesomeness of this dream. And he's recounted it. Is this vivid? Is this pretty specific? Daniel did not have a bad burrito here. I mean, he heard from God. And we know he heard from God because the king is absolutely silent. There's no record of him saying anything until we get to the last section, verses 46 through 49. So Daniel decides, well, let me roll here. I'm just going to go into the interpretation. Look with me at verses 36 and following. This was the dream. Now we will tell you its interpretation. Did you notice the we? Could be literary, editorial. It could be including Daniel's friends. But it's most likely Daniel saying, God in me. 
I'm relaying to you what God has impressed upon me. He says, this was the dream. Now we will tell you the interpretation before the king. You, O king, are the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And whatever the sons of men, wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them all. You are the head of gold. After you, there will arise another kingdom, inferior to you, then another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. Then there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things, so like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. In that you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom, but it will have in it the toughness of iron, inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. As the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. Before we read verses 44 and 45, circle verse 44. Just take a moment and circle verse 44. Verse 44 is the key verse in the entire chapter. There are significant verses, and I've had you circle them all so that you can go back and further your study. But verse 44 is the key. Listen to this. In the last days, in these days of kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone, there it is again, a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands. In other words, divine. That it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. The great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So that the dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. I'd like to call your attention to the screens. And I'm going to quickly walk through the interpretation of the king's dream. Now, I don't want you to take notes. That's not necessary right now because this is just to whet your appetite. I'm not going to go into hardly any detail. We're saving that for Daniel chapter 7, which expounds fully on Daniel chapter 2 and gives us further interpretive clues. I'm just providing you an appetizer, and I need you to come back in February for Daniel chapter 7. So you can see in most of your English Bibles, and in any commentary, the typical Christian view is the correct Christian view. That there are four kingdoms being emphasized. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. These four kingdoms are ultimately taken out. They're destroyed. And then there's an aspect of the fourth kingdom 
It's a united kingdom. It's a two-division kingdom. It's a ten-division kingdom. It deals with the feet and the toes. We'll look at that in Daniel 7. That is the latter-day kingdom or empire. That's when verses 44 and 45 take place, and God himself, in the person and work of Jesus Christ, comes in and destroys everybody and sets up his eternal kingdom. A thousand-year reign where he fulfills his promises to Israel, and then the eternal kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth. See, the stone is the cornerstone the stumbling stone, the foundation stone. We know him as the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. The mountain that will come about is God's kingdom. It's Jesus Christ's kingdom, which he will bring about that will be the ultimate kingdom that will cause all other kingdoms of the world to pale in comparison. So what do we do with all this intel? We realize basic truths. First of all, God ordains all government. He has ordained all kingdoms. He has set them into motion. He has given rulers their opportunity to rule. Remember, we've said God is the one who is large in charge, and God controls who is in control. That's true right now, and that will be true in a few more days in our country. And it's true throughout the world. Secondly, every kingdom and every ruler is temporary. Look at these great kingdoms, Babylon, the Medes and the Persians, Greece, Rome, the ultimate kingdom of the Antichrist. They're all temporary. They're short-lived. Which leads to the third and most important truth. Jesus Christ is supreme. History is his story. History is all about Jesus, the stone who will bring about the mountain of his kingdom. No matter what's happening with governing authorities, no matter what's happening in our country, no matter what's happening in the world, Republicans, Democrats, socialists, libertarians, communists, all of it is irrelevant. What's important is that King Jesus the stone or the rock will reign one day. So what we know is simply this. God is the God of crunch time. But there's still a little tension left in the story. What is King Nebuchadnezzar going to say to Daniel's dream, recounting, and the interpretation? Look with me at verses 46 through 49, of uh, 46 through 49. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and did homage to Daniel and gave orders to present him an offering and fragrant incense. The king answered Daniel and said, Surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of lords, a king of kings and a revealer of mysteries, since you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel made request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the administration of the province of Babylon while Daniel was at the king's court. Daniel was honored by King Nebi. 
Instead of being executed, he was honored. He was given gifts. He was even promoted. He was most likely the prime minister of Babylon, the greatest empire in the world. As a teenager, he was given that kind of respect and that kind of leadership. And then he didn't, re, he didn't forget the little people, did he? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He said, come on down. I want you to be ruling and exercising authority with me. Daniel was a man of courage. But we don't say things like, dare to be a Daniel, dare to stand alone. No, the only way we can do that is because God is a courageous God and because Jesus Christ has demonstrated courage and given it over to us. The only way we can be courageous is through Christ. We would just fall apart in any crisis if it wasn't for Christ and the indwelling Holy Spirit and believers that we can gather with. God is the God of crunch time. The question is, will you call out to God? Not just in crunch time, but before crunch time occurs. Will you be establishing a relationship with the Lord, intimacy with Him, intimacy with the body of Christ, so that when your crunch time hits, you're prepared? You're not rushing around trying to figure out what to do. You know what to do. You turn to God first in prayer. You surround yourself with godly believers. And you pray that God will show up. Because God is the God of crunch time. But what I want you to see that's so important is the stone initially came the first time around to ultimately crush, to smash. No. Is that true? He came to save. But one day, the stone, the rock, is going to come, and it's not going to be to save, it's going to be to smash, to crush. And I want each and every one of you to be ready. See, King Nebi revered God. God of gods, Lord of lords, King of kings. He revered God, but he did not receive God. There's a huge difference. Many people talk the talk about God, a lot of God talk going around. They even bring up Jesus. They revere God. They revere Jesus, but they have not received God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You can do so today. You can receive Jesus Christ as your Savior by simply acknowledging your sin and crying out to the Savior of the world and saying, I will trust you to cover my sin. I will trust you to take me to heaven when I die. That's the ultimate crunch time. And that's where God comes up in the clutch. He offers us Jesus Christ the stone, the rock. And I'm telling you, everything else in our world, everything else in your personal life is shifting stand. We see that now with COVID. We see that with a nation that has been filled with all kinds of insurrection and anarchy. We see how fragile things are. Run to the rock. 
Run to the rock of your salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust in Him today. And know that when crunch time comes, you're ready. Will you please pray with me? Father, we come before you and we ask right now for each and every person here and who is watching online that they would recognize that they may be in crunch time this very moment because they don't know how long they will live. We don't know when the eternal crunch time will occur, but we want to be ready. We want to know that we have prepared in advance by trusting the Lord Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. And again, you can do that right now. You can cross over from death to life by just saying, Jesus, I've revered you, I've respected you, but now I'm ready to receive you as my Savior from sin. You can do that in the privacy of your own heart. I'd love to know about it. I'll be available at the Welcome Center. You can tell another believer who's a part of our church. You can go on to our prayer chat room if you're watching online and you can talk to someone who will help you cross over from death to life. You can go to the prayer room to your right and spend time with someone who has been praying for you and who will help you cross over from death to life. Father, would you help us to celebrate you, the God of crunch time, the God who is faithful forever, the God who is bringing his kingdom to earth, the God who is bringing about a new heavens and a new earth. We trust in the stone, we trust in the rock, and we're going to rely upon him. Thank you, Jesus, for who you are and for all that you are. In your great name, amen.